like to invite you to open your Bible, if you have it with you this morning, to the book of Acts. The book of Acts in the New Testament, right after the Gospels, and chapter 1. Acts 1 is where we will start this morning, so if you want to find your place there. Last Sunday in our series, God's Grand Design, we're looking at the what I've called the beauty of biblical complementarity, God's design of men and women. We asked the question, what did Jesus do and teach in regard to men and women? Did he follow the pattern that we have observed in the Old Testament? Or did he replace it with his own teaching? And so we looked at Jesus and the Gospels. And saw that he did continue that Old Testament pattern based in creation of male leadership. He appointed 12 apostles who were men. And he highly valued women as full, equal disciples who are both subjects of and participants in his ministry, in this gospel ministry. Jesus made two intriguing and I think important statements to this end. They're found in the Gospel of Luke. We looked at the Gospel of Luke last Sunday. But let me give these. I'll put these on the screen so you don't have to turn there. But just listen and you can read those as I read Luke chapter 8. These are both from Jesus. And just listen to what he says. These are both somewhat intriguing and I think instructive. So Luke 8, starting in verse 19 and his mother, this is Jesus' mother, came to him and his brothers also. And they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. And then a little bit later in chapter 11 of Luke, somewhat similar type of statement. Verse 27, and it came about while he, Jesus said these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Those are interesting statements, instructive statements. As important and as precious as the family is, and even as motherhood, his own mother is, there's something more essential. Something more blessed, he says. Namely, relationship to him. Relationship to him even supersedes family, his own family, his own mother here. He's not disparaging his mother. He will honor his mother and the cross. He will provide for her. But he came, Jesus came, to call into permanent being the family of God. Something that will even supersede family. In fact, at times will divide family, he'll say also. And this family of God is both true of men and women. And that's what's essential about us. So Jesus said those intriguing things. We'll see some more of that even this morning. This morning, 
we're going to move now from Jesus and the Gospels to the book of Acts and the early church. So you're in Acts chapter 1. We'll start there. We move to the book of Acts and the early church. What did the early church do? We saw what Jesus did. What did the early church do? Did they follow the same pattern regarding men and women that we observe both in the Old Testament and in the Gospels? Or did they understand Jesus' teaching and the inauguration of the new covenant as doing away with all role distinctions in church and in family? Again, that's an important question to ask. Just like we saw with Jesus coming, so with the beginning of the New Testament church, we are at another significant transition. The church now is a spiritual family, that's what Jesus was pointing to, which is not a political nation like Israel was. It's not a political nation based on genealogy like descendants physically of Abraham. So the church is different than what we observed in the Old Testament form of the kingdom under Israel. There's no patriarchy as the kind of foundational basis of the people of God like we see in the Old Testament. There's no monarchy, obviously, no king. There's no priesthood or temple. Jesus is the final permanent priest who fulfills that role, that type. So there are no more human mediators between God and men. In fact, in one sense, we all are a spiritual priesthood. So those old covenant forms are gone. The spiritual family or community, the church, is based on faith in Jesus. That's what's central what we see. And yet, we will see that we still have spiritual leadership roles in the church that follow the same basic pattern that we've seen in the Old Testament and in the Gospels. There are elements from those Old Covenant forms that do carry over. Elements like elders the shepherding functions of the priest, not the sacrificial functions, that do carry over, and we will see the same pattern. And I think we would expect this because of what we've been trying to say in this series from the very beginning is that these functions, men and women, are not arbitrary, nor are they merely based in Old Testament culture, but they are inherent in God's good, grand design. And that design continues and is clearly expressed, as we are in the New Testament, in the church and in the family. So this morning we look at Acts and the early church. Now today will be the last survey type of sermon here in our message. I'm anxious to get 
done with survey and get into more specific text, and we will begin that next week. So again, I want you to get your Bible fingers kind of ready here because we're going to move rather quickly through several texts to try to get the landscape here of the early church, Acts and the early church. As we come to the book of Acts, if you're in Acts chapter 1, really Acts is just volume 2 of Luke. Same author. This is volume 2 that now he's going to write after the ascension of Jesus, after the resurrection of Jesus, and now his ascension, the history here, some of it, of the early church. And again, what we will see, I will argue, is a remarkably similar pattern of male leadership and significant engagement of women. That same pattern we've been seeing continues. Again, I want to observe it under these three roles. Number one, role of the apostles. The role of the apostles in the early church. So last Sunday, if you were with us last Sunday, we saw that Jesus intentionally appointed 12 men as apostles. How crucial that role is. And he was preparing them, so much of his ministry was training them for roles as official leaders in this new messianic community called the church after his departure. He gives them the keys of the kingdom. And so as we open the book of Acts, chapter 1, this is right after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus actually spends 40 days, 40 days before he's ascended, after his resurrection, And he spends 40 days, we ask, why does he do that? He spends 40 days in final preparation of these men. Do you know that? Of these apostles and these early disciples. He's he's going to convince them of his resurrection. That they just weren't seeing a ghost. It wasn't a one-time thing. He's going to convince them with many proofs that he is risen. He's going to teach them about the kingdom And he's going to commission them as his witnesses. That's what he's doing in those 40 days. And he instructs them in chapter 1 that I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. I want you to wait in truth. Don't start on this mission until the Holy Spirit comes to empower this mission. And so that's where we find them. We pick it up in Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 12 through 26 as the story continues. So if you have your Bible there, you can follow as I read this. Acts chapter 1. Verses 12 through 26. Here they are. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So just pause there for a moment. So he highlights the 12, now the 11. Right? Minus Judas. Judas, the betrayer, has committed suicide. There's the 11. He names them along with the women. So that's what we saw, remember, in the Gospels, these women who were disciples and followers of Jesus, the strategic role that they played. Well, 
They're continuing. And now we hear, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is now a disciple of Jesus, much more important than being the mother of Jesus. She's a disciple of Jesus and his brothers at some point have come to faith. And that's their role. In fact, Mary's not highlighted again. We never hear from Mary again. Do you know that? But it's noted here that she and her other sons are followers. They're disciples of Jesus. So here they are in this upper room. You'll say in the next verse, there's 120 of them in all. These first followers of Jesus, the apostles and these women. What's the first thing they're going to do before the Holy Spirit comes? Well, it might surprise you. Let's read it. Verse 15. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering about 120 persons was there together. And he said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field is called Hakeldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no man dwell in it and his office let another man take. It is therefore necessary, this is Peter now, that the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, which is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go into his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, that might surprise you. It's the first thing they do. We need to replace Judas. We need to replace him. Because the scripture says it. Now, I'm not going to go through detail. We've talked through Acts. You can go back and listen how they get there from there, from those scriptures. It was 12. Jesus appointed 12. That number is significant. We said that last week. That number, this is the, the new people of God, right? You have the 12 patriarchs and the 12 tribes. You have the 12 apostles. This is the new people of God now here. There must be 12. They understood that. And there's a couple qualifications they must have. That's how important this role is. They had to be with Jesus from the beginning. That is what they're going to teach. It has to come directly from Jesus. Right? So they have to have known Jesus, been with him since the beginning of the ministry. And they, they have to be an eyewitness of the risen Jesus. Because that is their role. They are witnesses of the resurrection. And they were men. Don't miss that. I know we read over that. Again, don't forget who's there in the upper room. It's the eleven and disciples and the women and some of these women have been with jesus from the beginning and many of these women we know were eyewitnesses of the resurrection but they were not put forward there's two men put forward and so the same pattern continues it's very intentional it's very deliberate they understood jesus pattern and they continue in it and they choose one and now they're the 12 again what is their role? 
What is the role of the, the apostles in the early church? Well, as I noted last Sunday, they had this foundational role. They were the original eyewitnesses. Their gospel came from Jesus. So what were they? I'll just put this up for you. They were teachers, right? They taught. We'll see the early church devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're unfolding what Jesus gave them. They received it from Jesus. They were the teachers. They're unfolding how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. They got their instruction from Jesus. So they are teachers. They are leaders. In the church, they're the shepherds in this early church, right? They governed, they made decisions. When they began selling things and selling their land, they brought those proceeds to the apostles' feet to see how they would be distributed. They are in charge that way. They're governing and shepherding. And as I just said, they were witnesses of the resurrection. That's their chief role. They are proclaiming. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses that I am risen and they were, they were convinced of that and the Holy Spirit empowers them for that. So that is their foundational role in the early church. Here's an example. If you just fast forward a few chapters to chapter six, instead we'll move through a few texts here this morning. Chapter six, here comes the first conflict potentially in the church at Jerusalem. This church now that is very big, thousands. It says in verse 1, at that time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So they are taking care of widows by daily serving food. And there becomes this potential conflict seemingly along some ethnic lines. And here it is, verse 12, and the 12, or verse 2, excuse me, and the 12 summoned the congregation. So there's the 12 exercising this governing, oversight, leading. And they say, it's not desirable to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It's a priority. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid hands on them. So here's, here's an example of both their leading and their commitment to their ministry of the word. Right? Now, many have seen this as a precursor to what becomes later the office of deacon. These seven men are not deacons. They're not called that here anywhere. They're the seven. That's what they're called, the seven. And maybe it has some implications to the later office of deacon, at least as far as we see this division in ministry with the priority of this. this we, we have to preach. We have to minister to the word. But this ministry is essential to uh, this more service-oriented ministry. So some division, they thought that was good to protect the apostles in their ministry. And they appoint, again, seven men who are qualified. Again, not deacons here. Seven men full of the Holy Spirit who will lead this ministry. Even though it's a ministry to women, to widows. They will lead. In fact, two of these seven will then also become leaders in this mission of this gospel going forward. Stephen and Philip will begin proclaiming this word of God and in addition to the apostles as the word goes forward. 
So that's, we see a little snapshot of the apostles. We could multiply that. But before I leave this role of the apostle, I have to mention one other thing, the ministry of the apostle Paul and his co-workers. The ministry of the apostle Paul and his co-workers. Because that's what the rest of the book of Acts becomes. After the conversion of this Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee, to Paul, the apostle, the rest of the book of Acts follows Paul from chapters 13 all the way to the end. Now, Paul is not one of the 12. They didn't make a mistake when they chose the 12. There's supposed to be 12. Paul is not one of the 12, but he is an apostle on equal footing. He is utterly unique in the Bible. There's no more Pauls being produced in his unique role. His role was an apostle specifically for the mission to the Gentiles. As this church now is going to begin to spread, as the gospel first goes to the Gentiles, the 12 will be overseeing that, Peter with Cornelius, and yet it's going to be Paul who is charged with this ministry to the Gentiles. So this is a significant moment in church history as this gospel goes forward and God raises up one unique man, Paul, as an additional apostle. Again, utterly unique. He's on equal fitting because he is an eyewitness of the risen Christ and he receives his gospel from Jesus himself. No man teaches it to him, but it's in accord with the 12, the other apostles. And so we could trace the ministry of Paul, but what do we see him do? Well, we see him gather around him a group of faithful men who were his co-workers sent out to fulfill various ministry assignments. They were messengers of Paul. They were delegates who represented his authority. He has kind of his closer circle, Barnabas, Timothy, Silas, and Luke, to some degree, those were the men who traveled the most with him, who are with him quite a bit of the time. But there are others who maybe weren't with him all the time, but he would send men like Titus, John Mark, Trophimus, Tychicus, Epaphroditus, Epaphras. These are part of Paul's circle of, again, men that he is co-laboring with in this gospel that represent him in different ways and one well-known missionary couple Priscilla and Aquila and we'll get to those two in just a little bit later but they are also part of his co-working but we see this consistent pattern so that's that's the role of the apostle again continuing on from Jesus the 12 with Paul and then his co-workers, the foundational ministry to the church, the shepherds, the teachers, the leaders. Second, second role I want to highlight, the role of elders, the role of elders. As the gospel now, as we trace the book of Acts, as the gospel spreads to Gentiles and churches are formed, these local communities of believers what is the transition from the apostles and Paul and his immediate co-workers? What's the transition of leadership spiritually in the churches? 
What we see in the book of Acts is that there is no succession of apostles. There's no more apostles. Again, these men had an utterly unique foundational role as eyewitnesses who received their ministry directly from Jesus, including Paul. They lay a foundation. There's no succession. There's not appointing more apostles. There are none. Now, we may use, and the Bible does at times, apostle with a small a, a sent one. We tend to think in terms of like missionaries sent out. Some that Paul will send out may use that title or that word at times. But when it comes to capital A, the 12 and Paul, there are no more. So what do we see? What do we see happen? Well, I will assert it's this role of elders. So if you're still in Acts, just keep fast forwarding with me to chapter 14 of the book of Acts and look here. And I think we have a pattern, a paradigm for what is going to happen now in the church from this point forward. Acts 14, we pick up the story. Paul has already been out with Barnabas on this, we call it his first missionary journey amongst Gentiles in what we today call Turkey, the southern part of Turkey. And he has made many disciples and churches are being formed. Many of them amidst persecution. Paul's almost killed, stoned. And he comes back now. At, they've completed this kind of circuit they've gone on and planted these disciples. And they're going to come back through that before they go back to the church they were sent out from. And it says this. Look at Acts 14, verse 21. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. That's Derby, That's the city. And they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And here it is, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They appointed elders in every church. And there's multiple churches in these different cities. And this becomes the pattern of leadership for the church. Again, the church would have understood that idea of elder, just referring to their mature character here, probably older men. They had that concept from the Old Testament. Remember, we saw elders under the patriarchy and certainly from the synagogue elders in their positions here. So he appoints elders, more than one in every church. And this becomes the pattern and again follows the same pattern. They are men. Always. In chapter 15, we won't look there, but as you read chapter 15 and this whole controversy in the early church comes up about circumcision and the law, when they go back to Jerusalem, we find that there's already elders serving along with the apostles in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the base of the 12, the apostles. But again, they are being sent out and we have elders now appointed there in the church, even at Jerusalem, along with the apostles. What do they do? We get a little window, a little snapshot. If you just, again, fast forward with me to chapter 20 of the book of Acts, we get a little snapshot into the role of these men and why they are not just old men in the church, <laughs> We reckon these are actually in a, a role, a spiritual leadership shepherding role. So look at Acts 20. Here's Paul again. He's returning and he called, verse 17, he says, he sent from Miletus and he sent 
from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So one of those churches, Ephesus, he calls to him the elders of the church. He's about 20 miles south of them. He wants to meet with them one more time. So the last time he's going to see them. This is a really impassioned encounter that he has. He knows what awaits him. He's not going to see them again. And so he's he wants to charge them one more time, these elders, and he tells about his ministry. But down in verse 28, we get a glimpse into what these elders are to do. Listen to him. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There it is. You elders are overseers. That's the role of leading, governing the church. And what are you to do? You're a shepherd. All those images out of the Old Testament. You're to shepherd the church. You're to protect. You're to feed. You're to care for. That's your role. And he's charging them to do it, to be on guard. Why? Because false teachers are coming right right in your own church. You've got to be on guard against them. So shepherd, protect those sheep. This is that role of elders. So just a couple notes here. Who were the elders? These men were the overseers, teachers, and shepherds, it's our word pastor, of local churches. That's who they were. Overseers, teachers, shepherds. So he says here, shepherd the church of local churches. Our word pastor comes from the word shepherd. They were mature, godly men, Again, from that example of the Old Testament and the synagogue. And their role was to feed, teach, and to guard against false teaching. To guard against false teaching. I won't turn there, but Peter over in First Peter exhorts those elders. So not just Paul, but Peter is exhorting those elders to shepherd the church of God among you. You have oversight. Shepherd the church. Do so voluntarily. Do so eagerly. Don't lord it over the flock. You're not that kind of leader. You're a servant. You're not abusive in your leadership. Serve, feed, protect the flock. And then the other note. They must exemplify godly character and the ability to teach sound doctrine. That's what's required of these men. They must exemplify godly character and the ability to teach. Now let's just move just briefly outside of the book of Acts. So fast forward there to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here's Paul writing later now to a couple of these churches. Interesting, back to the church at Ephesus. Remember he just exhorted those elders at Ephesus? Well now we're fast forwarding many years. And indeed false teaching has come to the church at Ephesus. There are people teaching strange things. And so he sends one of his delegates co-workers, Timothy, to that church for a season to set it in order. That they would know how to conduct themselves in the church. And that's what First Timothy is all about, is how to conduct yourselves in this local assembly, in the church here. So he's giving him instruction. Timothy, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. And I want you to teach this. And chief among them, appoint overseers. Overseers. Verse Chapter 3, verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's that same office. It's a fine work, he desires. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband 
of one wife. That is a one woman man. Same pattern. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. So so we see this connection between family and the family of God and his his leadership there in the family. Part of this whole series transitions over to leadership in the church here. So that's a qualification. He must do that. But if a man, verse 5, doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. They must be this. These men. To be this office. And again, it is men. They are husbands of one wife. They are managers of their Households. One other text, just a couple books forward there, is Titus. Titus chapter 1, again, another one of Paul's letters. It's very similar, but just notice what he says here. Titus, same thing. He sends another of these delegates to the island there of Crete because things are messed up there and of their reputation. And he's, I said, I'm, I'm leaving you there. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. Or excuse me, verse 5. For this reason, Titus, I left you in Crete that you might set in order what remains. I have an order, and I want you to set in order what remains. And appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So every of these churches on Crete, I want you to appoint elders. That's the pattern. Namely, and then he gives the qualification. If any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For, then he switches titles. Once you appoint elders, for the overseer must be. It's the same position. Elder, overseer, shepherd. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tippered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gate, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-control, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. It's his role got to be able to teach he's got to be able to protect against false doctrine so as we see in the new the the role of elder elder overseer and pastor are all the same office they're all the same it's the shepherding leadership role in the church and in every case it is men who are qualified third third role i want to get to this the role of women the role of women in the church here just as we have seen in the old testament and highlighted examples and we saw last week in the gospels with jesus the significant role of women so here too the same pattern continues let me just give you a one-line summary and then just a couple examples women are seen as active participants in the church's life and witness they are active indispensable part of the church's life and witness There's this gospel partnership with men. No, we don't see them in roles of official leadership. That is the apostles, Paul's delegates to the churches or elders, pastors. Yet, yet an indispensable in the life and ministry of the church. As we would expect in this gospel ministry. And this just continues the pattern in the gospels. 
Remember, right, right at the beginning of the book of Acts, we saw the women. They're their upper room devoting themselves to prayer. They're there on the day of Pentecost in the reception of the Holy Spirit. They are part of this witness of the church from the very beginning. So we see it. Here are three examples. We could give many examples. Here are three. Acts 16, Lydia. Lydia. So if, you, if you're there, you can turn to Acts 16. Again, we're moving around a lot, I know, today. Acts 16, here's Lydia, verse 13. Again, Paul, now in the city of Philippi, this Roman city where there is no synagogue. So Paul's habit normally is to go into the synagogue, preach first, but there is none. So it says in verse 13 of chapter 16, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And then right at the end of the chapter, we read, this is the chapter where Paul and Silas are put in prison, earthquake, let out. Verse 40, they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So here you have, most likely, an unmarried businesswoman who hosted the church in Philippi. She used her means. She has some means. The seller of purple fabric. She's not from here. She's from that other province in Thyatira. She's probably here for a season on business. She owns a house. The Lord saves her. This is a strategic conversion by the Lord. There's no synagogue here. He saves this woman who becomes the host of this church. Her hospitality, her generosity, her strategic help to Paul and these early disciples. We see an example of here. Priscilla and Aquila. I mentioned them earlier. Just look over Acts 18. And we see this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla, the wife, Aquila, the husband. They are always together in the Bible. They are mentioned five times or six times, excuse me, six times in the New Testament. That's really significant here. We find them in chapter 18. And Paul now is in Corinth, verse 2. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he finds them, partnership, he's going to live with them. You get Paul living with you for 18 months at the end of this chapter verse 26 this other man apollos comes from alexandria he comes to corinth he's a believer but he's not well instructed he only knows of the baptism of john and he's beginning to preach and verse 26 it says he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue but when priscilla and aquila heard him they took him aside and explained to him the way of god more accurately and amazing so this couple instructing this apollos they don't have the same role as Apollos. He's going to be this teacher, preacher that they're going to send to Ephesus, but he needs more instruction. So they, as a couple, privately do it together. Obviously, Priscilla is skilled, is learned, is sound in doctrine, able to be part of this instruction here to Apollos with her husband. So this is a remarkable couple. 
They were bivocational workers of Paul, instrumental in the churches of Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. They used their trade, tit-making, leather work, to support Paul. They were strategic in all these churches. They move around. Again, we don't know if they had children or if their children are grown, but they used their ministry, their marriage, in this really remarkable way. They risked their lives for the sake of Paul, we read in Romans 16. One other example is Phoebe. So this again, go to the book of Romans chapter 16. This is outside of Acts. But Romans 16, one last example. Chapter 16 of Romans. Now we've talked through Romans, so if you want all of it, you can go listen to it. Romans 16 is remarkable in so many ways as Paul sends all his greetings to this church he's never been to. And in that he mentions ten women. Ten women in this list of 26 or 7 that he names. And these women, as you read through that, are noted for working hard in the Lord. That's what they're known for. Working hard in the Lord, he says. He honors them. He commends them. He says, pass my greetings on to these women. So we see them, again, engaged in vital ministry, gospel ministry. They're not known here just for being moms or motherhood or even as what they're, they're commended for their ministry in the Lord. Some of them sisters, single, working hard for the Lord. And at the front of the list here is Phoebe. Phoebe, do you see it? Verse six, chapter 16, verse 1. I commend, he's commending her to the church at Rome. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, that you help her in whatever matters she may have need of. For she herself also has been a helper of many and of myself as well. Paul commends her to the church. Why would he do that? She's not from there. She's from the Corinth area where Paul is writing from. Well, more than likely, she's carrying the letter. She's carrying the, the letter, the greatest letter ever written of Rome, Romans, to the church. That's her role here. She's probably coming there on other business. Who is she? Again, most likely an unmarried, quote, she's called a servant of the church who was a helper. This is that word for patron, a benefactor of many, including Paul. Come into you, Phoebe. She's been a helper of me, a patron to me, a supporter of me, and not just to me, but many as well. She's a servant of the church. You know, we don't know what all that means, but she has some, some way she's recognized in her service in this local church back in Centrea. She's coming to Rome, and if she has any needs, you help her because she has helped so many. Again, she's a patron, Doug Moo, in his commentary on Romans, kind of a helpful summary. He says, a patron was one who came to the aid of others, especially foreigners, by providing housing, financial aid, and by representing their interests before local authorities. Centrea's status, that's where she's from, as a busy seaport, it's the seaport of Corinth, would make it imperative that a Christian in its church take up this ministry on behalf of visiting Christians. Phoebe, then, was probably a woman of high social standing and some wealth who put her status, resources, and time at the service of traveling Christians like Paul who needed help and support. Paul now urges the Romans to do the same. That's Phoebe. We could multiply examples. And I just, I hope, just in those brief examples, even for ladies here, women here, it just some 
vision for ministry in the church. Now, we're going to talk in our series about women in ministry. That'll be part of this series. But just through this, let's just read some of these examples of how indispensable these women were, whether married, whether single, with kids, without kids, how used they were. And that vision for ministry would be exciting and seen not as demeaning or restrictive. It's my prayer. This ministry that's, yes, under godly shepherds, as the Lord intends, that that ministry would not be demeaning or restrictive, but freeing and protective. And that's true for all of us in ministry. God's design for His church. Now, let me stop here. I'm done. I'm out of time. I don't have time to end like I wanted to end with Galatians. We'll do it another time. But we just see, I hope you see, as I said, this is the end of our survey. No more surveys. We're going to exposition of text. I have at least seven of them text uh, to look at over these next weeks, one at a time, to flesh out the implications of all that we've been seeing, both in the foundations and in the survey. So we will look and try to answer specific questions and develop this. But again, my prayer here is that we would see God's good design and that we would rejoice in it and love it and believe that it is good for His church and it is good for us. And that we would see the essential dignity and value of men and women in ministry. That we have a spiritual equality before the Lord. That's where we started. Who is my mother and brothers, sisters? It's those, it's those who are following Jesus, His disciples. This equality. That there would be no demeaning or sense of inferiority. And within that beautiful equality before Christ, this vision of ministry would be just as inviting and beautiful as he lays out these roles for us. So that's my prayer as we move forward. Let me pray for us as we finish this morning. Father, we, we marvel that we are the body of Christ. That we are brothers and sisters. That we belong to Jesus on equal footing. That we are heirs of salvation. Adopted by you. Help us to love your design. Both men and women. That we would live it out here in the church and in our families. As a light even to our own community. So teach us as we go through this series. Help us with understanding and sensitivity and ultimately cause us to love your word, to trust you and to love you in all these things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.